Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Hosea chapter 9 tonight. Uh, it reads, do not, re- oh, do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people, for you have played the harlot against your God. You've made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. Context is that God is letting go of the northern kingdom. He's waited 200 years for them to repent. They have not done it. Uh, The 10 tribes that make up the northern kingdom are about to be dissolved throughout the rest of the world in part because they don't want God in the first place. So the natural consequence of not wanting God is God listens. And then you don't have God. And then you're left to whatever happens afterwards. So they are going to have to deal with the Assyrians without God's support or help or protection. And that will not go well for them as it comes forward. The hope of God withdrawing himself is that the survivors actually choose to repent. So God's true hope for his children is that they actually do desire him in their lives. And when they do, when they ask him, he will return. So that idea of giving up their idols is something that they just have to be broken of. Uh, So they keep going after this stuff and they're showing a disdain for God when they do it. And Hosea is that prophet where he has had to marry a prostitute, which is an image of this relationship. Um, Just, he loves them. He wants them to be in our covenant with him, but they just keep breaking the covenant. Every time he looks up, they do it. So Hosea chapters one through three, God had Hosea marry the prostitute as an image of how he feels about Israel. And then we start off in this chapter using that metaphor. Basically, um, you've made love for hire on every threshing floor. The idea in every town is they'd find the highest spot they could and a threshing floor was a flat area of concrete where you could put the wheat crops and the wind would blow away the chaff. And the idea of using or, or using those spaces for, for harlotry basically is that they would have idol worship at these threshing floors because they were an image of the harvest. So this is where they would worship their gods. One of the forms of worship was to have sex. And that sexual act was seen as a religious act to some of the Baals, um, Ashtaroth in particular. But here that image is used as this idea of a, a hilltop being, every single hilltop has this going on. Basically, instead of having a blessing in their harvest, verse 2, the wine press shall not feed them. Their harvest isn't going to give them joy at all because it's filled with all this corruption. Verse 3, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom because that's the biggest tribe. In the same way we say Judah for the southern kingdom, even though Benjamin's part of that too. Um, But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. And all who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. Egypt to Assyria is like saying north to south. Everywhere you look in this, every one of them, from border to border, they're going to have this failure of the crops. 
Egypt's going to be an image of slavery and the image of being slaves. Assyria is an image of idolatry and the consequences of it. So whether or not you look at imagery here, the point is pretty clear. You reject God, you seek idols, God says you can have them. And then let them provide for you. Let them put the food on the, on the table. And so that idea of being defiled in the Hebrew is the word tameh. Um, specifically, the defilement is the idea that what they used to think was good, that bread, that harvest, is going to be foul, infected. It's just not going to be something that blesses you. You see this, I think, in our day and age. You see this when you got people living for the world and they make an income, but it still seems like they never have enough money. So they might harvest a crop, but it's defiled. There's something that's not fulfilling about it. And it just doesn't work. And it doesn't come to be. So that last line, their bread shall be for their own life. They're just going to live hand to mouth. And you're not even going to have enough extra to give to the Lord. You're just going to run out constantly. Um, so they'll have enough to live, to survive, but definitely not enough to celebrate. And maybe that's okay because all of their celebrations were heading for idol worship. Verse 5, what will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed they have gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The idea is that they're going, they just won't be there when God's people are enjoying the feast. They're going to miss out. They didn't honor God's feasts. God's going to take away the feasts. So they hunger after the world and the world's just going to eat them up. They reject God's joy, but God's joy will be accepted by other people. There are going to be people that enjoy God's blessing, even though they're not one of those people. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. He says Israel knows because they've had so many warnings for 200 years. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. They've treated those prophets that God sent like they didn't know what they were talking about. They treated Elijah, Elisha, Amos. They, um, they treated them Jonah. They treated them like they were crazy. So you say that these, that's there because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. Because you don't want to hear what they have to say, you, th you call them a fool. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a, is a fowler's snare in all his ways. Enmity in the house of God. Even your priests were a problem. Even the people in God's house are at odds with you. Verse 9, they're deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw, you, I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the things they love. This idea that, we'll start with the prophets being a fool. The prophets proclaiming God's words when people don't like it, they're basically saying God's words are foolish. You know, in Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to a nation when the good things that God set in front of us suddenly become bad things. Watch out for that. And especially with the northern kingdom, there's no promise of Messiah out of these ten tribes. They're just a nation that calls themselves Jewish. But there's no promise that God's obligated to keep with these nations. 
Um, they are hanging out there and they're calling the good things of God evil and the evil things of God good. And, that, and, and that's definitely a place where they should be wary of what that looks like. Not only are they blinded to what the godly prophets and priests have for them, they're only hearing the ungodly fools and the corrupt people. Because of, your great, because of the greatness of your iniquity, they love evil more than good, and they'd rather lie than speak righteousness. Psalm 52.3. There's an inactive, indicative of a fallen nation are people that deny truth and do it at the national level. And so this is something that is not new and it's not unique to the northern kingdom. Throughout history, there have been many nations where the leadership of that nation tries to tell the people to believe lies. And the warning of God's prophets is watch out for that. And what we read in 2 Peter this morning, like we are to remember what the prophets said because it's for our edification. So you look at that treatment of what's going on and what he's accusing the northern kingdom of is that they're actually boldly proclaiming lies and they're attacking people that tell the truth. There's a reference to Gibeah there in verse 9. See that? The days of Gibeah. Let's remember what the days of Gibeah were. Gibeah was in Judges chapter 19. Remember there was a Levite that goes to Gibeah. The people of Gibeah take his daughter and they rape her. And so to get, get that evil taken care of, he cuts the daughter up and sends pieces of her to all the tribes. And then the tribes come and they kill everybody in the city of Gibeah for that evil. So when he's referencing that, he's basically saying, you guys are worse than what the Gibeah did. You're, you're just down this road where at that time you got all these tribes that don't react to injustice at all and you don't deal with it. Verse 10, God's saying, I found Israel like grapes. God remembers that Israel has been fruitful and wonderful. He remembers Joseph and Gideon and Moses and David and Solomon. He remembers the fruitful people of Israel and says, when I found you in the wilderness, there was fruit to be had, but now you're going off to Baal Peor. <laughs> this is a play on words. Uh, Lord of the Gap is what it means. It's a Moabite term that gets thrown in there. There's no actual town. You went after the God of the Gap. What does that mean? Numbers 15, uh, the, the, the word that's close to that would be the prostitutes. Um, Basically, then it says, and they separated themselves to that shame. You went after separation, and then you separated yourself. You went after the gap, and now you're separated. In other words, you get what you pursue. You go after that thing, that's going to be what you become and what you turn into. So what's interesting is the word to separate yourself is nazar. It's the, word that, it's the root word in Hebrew for Nazarite. So, and a Nazarite was somebody on the Levitical wall, law that set themselves apart for God. And here it's being used the opposite way. <clears throat> they went after Baal Peor, the Lord of the Gap, and they did it to separate themselves, but not to be separated for God, but to be separated for their sin. They purposefully distanced themselves from God's people. So they serve the Gap, they become separated. You serve a living God, you become a living human. You serve a loving God, you become a loving human. You serve idols, you become empty. And, and there's just this idea, you become what you serve. You serve the Lord of the gap, you become separated. And it's one of those kinds of things like asking yourself, are you better for the things that you serve in life? Are you a better person? And so go to verse 11, as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. You serve the Lord of the gap, 
you became separated, not only will you be separated, you're going to fly away. You're going to be that far away from God's people. Their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Kids are a blessing. Part of the curse of the northern kingdom, remember, was their Chemosh worship. They would go to Baal worship festivals. They would have sex without any limits or boundaries of marriage. And then they would get pregnant. And then they would, have, and they would serve Chemosh by get, getting rid of the babies. And so this idea of, there's a consequence here. If you reject God and you distance yourself from God and you're going to go after those kinds of things, one of the consequences that's completely just is, well, God's going to limit the amount of times you have babies. And there's kind of a mercy in this. If all they're going to do is take those blessings called children and kill them, it makes a lot of sense that you would lower the birth rate of the people. Well, this, of course, makes my nerd ears perk up. If that's true, then the birth rates around the world should be higher based on, like, if this is any kind of consistent thing, we should see changes in birth rates that go with the godliness of the nation, right? And that's not a gimme. And again, we come to this point a lot of times. It's not an automatic thing, but one of God's tools to warn a nation is to lower their birth rate because that's the tool he's using in verse 11 and 12. I'm going to lower your birth rate. You're going to try to bring up children, yet I'm going to bereave you. You're going to have grieving. You're not going to raise these children. I'm not going to give you children just so that you can kill them. Right? And so God's going to protect them. If God cherishes children that much to reduce birth rate amongst a people, that shows a God that truly loves those children. Right? So this is another principle that we can look at and expect to see some things. Sure enough, in 1950, there were 24.2 children for every thousand in America. So a 24.2 birth rate is what you would call it. You go from 1950 to 1922, the most recent number we have, our current birth rate is down to 12 out of 1,000. We've been cut by 50% since 1950, the birth rate of the United States. Now, I don't know necessarily that that's God doing that. There's tons of other variables, right? But one of God's tools for a nation that's killing its children is, in fact, to reduce the birth rate itself. And so you could say, well, since 1950, we've had more abortions. Yes, that's part of what lowers the birth rate, too. And so you look at that birth rate change, and that's interesting. On the other hand, when you stick America at 12 per thousand on the birth rate, we're down where Russia is, 11.3, and China, 10.0. So you're looking at the U.S. birth rate now, and we're equivalent with Russia and China. That should say something about where we're at when it comes to blessings from God, if children are a blessing. What's the number one nation in the world right now when it comes to birth rate per thousand people? 18.9, Israel is the number one country on the planet. Interesting, isn't it? To see how God works and how God does that. Those numbers are coming right from US, or, uh, world census numbers. Verse 13, just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Again, the accusation is you keep killing kids, and Hosea is actually praying, Lord, just stop making kids with these people. They're just murdering them. Make it so they can't have them. 
if they're going to bring out your children to the murderer, that's a direct reference to the worship of Chemosh. They would bring out these babies and they would kill them because they were inconvenient. And they didn't really have the technology to kill it in the womb as much. Some of those things could hurt the mom more. So when you don't have abortive techniques in your medical system, then it was safer to have the baby and then kill it than to kill the baby in the womb. So they would do that. They did it a lot. The practice of killing children is not new and it's not unique and it's not modern. It goes back thousands of years. But the practice of killing children before or after birth, any time from fertilization forward is something that God has always disdained. And he's always said that's not his intent for that child. He didn't, he didn't fertilize that egg so that you could kill it. And so there's that idea of what will you give? Amos kind of starts out with a frustration. Go oh, give it to him, Lord, verse 14. But then you can see there's a pause there. It's like he, and I like this is interesting in the writing because it's like initially there's this anger, anger at verse 14, but then he keeps himself in check. And instead of putting his will on the murderers, he just stops and he shifts gears. What will you give, Lord? What are you going to do to these folks? And I think for believers, that's an interesting pause for us. When we get a sense of being so infuriated with injustice to just stop and breathe and say, God, not my will, but yours, it's a really healthy thing to do. God, what are you going to do next? How are you going to deal with that? And then he kind of prays, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. But verse 14 is an interesting verse because it almost feels like it's free form when it's there. So either it is free form and somebody's just recording what he's saying out loud, or he's actually trying to show this change of heart as to putting it in that sense. But frankly, the idea of a miscarrying womb is not good. That's deeply painful for people that want to have babies. This is a, a hard thing for couples to go through. Uh, but in this sense, again, it's a sad mercy that the best thing God can do is limit the amount of baby killing that's going on in this country and to do it by taking away those conceptions. With judgment coming, with Assyria coming, less kids in the picture is another kind of offhanded mercy that God's giving. Because Assyria starts to kill and take people away and haul them off to slavery, less kids means less suffering by kids. So when God starts lowering the birth rate of a country, that would to me to be a, a massive historical red flag. Watch out when that happens because why is God lowering the birth rate of that country? Why is God limiting the number of children that will be there over the next decade or two? What's about to happen when you see those numbers drop? Verse 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of their evil deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. If God invited them into his house and then they trashed the house, it is just for God to say, get out of my house. I don't need you here anymore. If you all came into my house and defiled it, it would be reasonable for me to say, you're not welcome in my house anymore. So thank you for not defiling my home when you come into it. I appreciate that. But it is to say that this is harsh for God, it's he gave them the land in the first place. So any blessing they have beyond being wanderers in the wilderness or slaves to Egypt is a blessing that he's given them over time. So they're not owed it. So verse 16, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings in their womb. 
I'm done with Ephraim, God's saying. We're going to end this tribe and the, and us, the associated tribes with them. At this idea of God ending the darlings in their womb, really interesting like concept that God is the creator of life. God then owns the right to take away that life too. And there's this judgment that's about to come, and this is how God's preparing the people for it. The idea of the darling in their womb is another key concept. Again, God doesn't see exiting the womb as when life begins. Life begins scientifically at fertilization. When an egg matches with a sperm, you have a DNA strand that zips together and it creates the coding for an entirely new human being. And at that point, the coded human being is separate and totally different and distinct from the mother. Different DNA. Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. It's interesting that in the Psalms, God covers the child in the womb and takes care of it and nurses it and cares for it and keeps it growing. But in this verse, when with a cursed people in verse 16, he also can take away that life before it ever happens. It's God's choice. And this is tough for us humans, especially when we want a baby. And God's saying, I have these plans for you, and this is how I'm going to direct your life. So God decides if the baby's covered, protected, and if it grows to term, or if it doesn't. And God holds that right, and it's not something he's given to the Israelites. Verse 17, my God will cast them away because he did not obey them, and they shall be wanderers among the nations, exactly where they started when God found them. It's going to take away the blessing. God's had enough. He's had 200 years of asking them to repent, which means God has a longer patience than I do. So after 200 years, he's saying, I'm going to just take away the blessings and remove it. He had to bring these consequences and it's precisely what he said he would do if they disobeyed. If you look at Deuteronomy 30, he promised them if they disobeyed that he would do exactly this. So if a God doesn't do it, then he's not keeping his promises. So he's delayed 200 years, but at some point, if he doesn't keep those promises, that makes God a liar. So God's going to keep his promises with these people. They've disobeyed long enough, and he's going to end that. Application-wise, God has said the same thing to us. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you have a path that heads to heaven. If you're going your own way, doing your own thing, living your own life for yourself, God is not obligated to bring you into that heaven. And there's a patience there. He gives us a lifetime to figure this out, which for us seems like this big, long time. For God, it's a blink. It's nothing. But he gives us this season to figure out who we follow and who we serve. And I don't think it's an accident that when we go through the word, it often speaks right to our heart. He knows who we are. He knows where we're at in life, and he knows when we need to hear things and how we need to hear them. So when we read passages like this, for me, that's a double check. Where's my heart? What am I serving? Where am I at? What do I stand for? Who am I living for? Where, where's my love and my adoration put? And that promise to us is that if we put our heart, mind, soul, and strength on Jesus Christ, there's nothing but better ahead of us in eternity. Then you get to chapter 10. It keeps going. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they've embellished his sacred pillars. 
God's blessed them and they just use it for idol worship. Verse 2, their heart is divided. Now they're held guilty and he will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. This is the thing. This is what I think the summary of chapter 9. When the heart's divided, this is probably the toughest part about the Christian walk. Is we get saved and we believe with our head that Jesus is our Savior, but then adjusting our lives to actually serving the Lord the way he says to do it, that's hard to do when the calling of this world is still pressing on us. So our heart gets divided. We serve the Lord, but we also serve this hobby over here. We serve the Lord, but we really serve our job over here too. So it's a tough thing for Christians to negotiate that. We have to work in order to eat, but we don't have to serve that work. We do it to make a buck, right? But what we serve is the Lord God Almighty. And if the Lord calls us here or there or the other place, we would go even at the expense of those other things in this world. That's a really tough place to be. Don't use God's blessings for sin. Take those blessings and use them for the kingdom. When there's excess in your life, you give it to the Lord. You got extra time? How can you serve people in the body? You got extra afternoon? How might you evangelize to tell people about the gospel? You have extra resources and you got people in the church that need things? Help them out, right? So that idea of just having the heart divided, the way you solve that is to take whatever's left and bless people with it. So you have an undivided heart. But they're held guilty. Again, much of Hosea is set up like a marriage contract. and Or much of Deuteronomy is set up like a marriage contract. Much of Hosea is set up like a divorce contract. The bride of Israel is guilty and he's holding them guilty, verse 2. And that means the covenant was broken by them. And at that point, God's obligations change. Verse 3. For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. This judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. I like when Hosea uses these kind of poetic phrases to describe what it is. What's it like to have hemlock in the furrows of the field? You're growing a nasty, poisonous plant where other people are going to try to eat. So that's what Israel's doing. By poisoning Judaism, they're actually hurting the people that might go there for wisdom. But this is what... God hopes for in the loss is that they start to ask questions like, why don't we have a king anymore? Remember, this was the whole deal. They wanted a king and God said, I'm going to give you a king, but you're just going to, your hearts are going to fall away from me. And so he hopes that as he withdraws these things, that they actually start to wonder and they start to see verse three, because we did not fear the Lord. They start to understand why the blessings are being taken away. I think it's much more dangerous for a country to have all these things happen, right? Your crops start to go bad flooding, fires, everything we've seen in Amos and Hosea. Your birth rate starts to decrease. You start to just have more and more troubles. There's threats and rumors of wars all around your country. It's even worse to go through that and not even start to think that it might be Christ. It might be God. And But God's hope is that they stop and say, oh, all this is happening because we didn't fear the Lord as a people. We ramshackle ran over God's law. and We didn't even care. And his hope is that they start to be able to say these things. They start to recognize, verse 4, that they have spoken words and they made a false covenant. That they said they were going to be under God and now they're not under God. And they can recognize that that difference is an untenable difference in the history of the world. You can't say you represent God and then go out into the world and do ungodly things. Because God won't have his name be besmirched like that forever. And 200 years is a long time to wait to get the hemlock out of the field. But that's at, at some level, they're going to realize that's what's going on. 
that the breaking of the covenant was their responsibility. Verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the call of Beth Avon. The calf of Beth Avon. Sorry about that. Calf there is the so he already mentioned uh, Gilgal and, and then this Beth Avon. There's no town called Beth Avon. Uh, what it is, is it's a play on words. The, the town where the big golden calf was, we know is Bethel. And so when he says Beth Avon, he's making a play on words. It's like when I, if I were to say, here we are in Lake Elmo, but then I changed that and it was Lake Helmo, right? He's just doing something where he's changing the word a little bit to kind of make fun of the name of that place. So when he says Beth-Avon instead of Bethel, he's changing house of God, Bethel, to Beth-Avon, the house of vanity and worshiping yourself. He's changing it to house of vanity. So reading that again, the inhabitants of Samaria fear because the calf of the house of vanity for its people mourn for it and the priests shriek for it. Because again, this image of priests shrieking, like the, the image he creates with those words. Because its glory has departed from it. Did the calf ever have glory in the first place? No. But they perceived that it did. And now it just seems empty that you got this calf symbolizing prosperity, but they have no prosperity left. So the calf looks pretty helpless in that situation. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of her own counsel. The idols that they worshipped and they thought were so special not only won't help them, but they're going to become something that's just a shame and the other nation's going to carry them away because they have no power whatsoever. It's interesting here as he names King Jerob in verse 6. That narrows it down to when the judgment is coming. It's going to be during that guy's reign. Now, if you're a smart northern kingdom person, you send all your assassins out to take out that king. Because when God says it's going to happen during that king's reign then you probably want to get rid of that king as best you can. Problem is, at this point, Israel's going through a king every month, remember? They don't have any authority structure in their nation. So they don't even have the ability to make those kinds of attacks. That said, God promised it, it's going to happen, and it's just been narrowed down considerably. Verse 7, As for Samaria, her king's cut off like a twig on the water. He's writing this probably in those later final years of the northern kingdom where they're going through all these kings assassinations, all that sort of thing. Also, the high places of vanity, Avon, the sin of Israel, they should be destroyed. All these things where you, you think you're so great, they're going to get wrecked too. All your mirrors, you won't be able to even look in them anymore. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. Your altars not only won't be used, they're going to look like Dickers' backyard out of just lack of tending, right? So there's going to be thorns and thistles all over the place. They shall say to the mountains, cover us and the hills fall on us. So the they shall say to the mountains is likely just the, the altars themselves in the way the sentence is constructed. So he's personifying these altars, saying, cover us, hide us. Like they're just an embarrassment. So they'll be unused, and in time they'll actually be covered over by dirt. It amazes me as we're digging up that yard how many of these paving stones we find about an inch under the dirt. In other words, in only about four or five years of just fall, spring, fall, spring, we're getting an inch of dirt covering these concrete pieces. And that makes it hard to dig holes, right, Grant? So you find these things all over them. It's like, how did they have so many pavers all over the yard? And how did they get buried so quick? It doesn't take long for the earth to generate soil and cover things up. It creates layers very quickly. 
Verse 9. O Israel, you've sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood in the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity, did not overtake them. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When is it my desire, verse 10, well, I will chasten them. The people should be gathered against them. And when I bind them for their two transgressions, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck and I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall pull a plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Okay, again, a lot of language coming from the farm. Despite an ugly past of sin, despite Gibeah, that ugly story, you still have sin. So you didn't learn. You've gone through this and you haven't been there. So this idea of pulling a plow, he's treating Israel like a wild animal. I tamed you so you could do some work. You got a trained animal, you chasten them, you bind them, you train them. Um, and, and that idea of you fighting that wildness is an idea of trying to get a sweet, good work in heifer on your farm. But if that heifer just keeps kicking against the goads and continues to be wild, uh, it is hard to train them, but sometimes to train a cow, it needs to feel some negative experiences. So that's the idea of, you got this trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I'm gonna teach Israel how to live righteously. I will tame this beast. And for God to do that, I'll make Ephraim pull a plow. I'm going to teach this thing how to do it. Verse 10, when it is my desire, I will chasten them. And sometimes for training an animal, they have to feel pain. The chastening of the animal is not to kill the animal. It's not to be brutal and to satisfy your desire to harm and hurt other living beings. But to chasten an animal is to give them enough of a sting to where they realize that that behavior is wrong. And I think the same thing's true with God's people. His goal here isn't just to kill for the sake of killing. His goal here is to make them as a nation feel the consequences of their action enough so that they don't want to do the action anymore. And I think one thing that's helpful when you look at God's judgment in these situations is that this actually works, right? When the Israelites come back from Babylon, when they start to randomly return from Assyria from different places, after the return of the Israelites, we never see idol worship again in this form that they were doing back then, ever. In fact, they go the other direction. They go legalistic. And by the time Jesus shows up, you got a bunch of Pharisees running around being legalistic, which is the other side of that spectrum. So instead of being permissive, they turn legalistic. But they never struggle with idol worship after this. So the chastening actually does harness the Jewish people. It works. And they get such a distaste for idol worship that they run around trying to do nothing even close to it. Don't even spit on the ground on a Sunday because that might be breaking the Sabbath. Right? So don't even pull water from the well unless you use a harness or something like that. Because that might be perceived as work, which is breaking the Sabbath. That's how extreme they got with all their laws. But part of why they got that extreme is because of this chastening that's about to happen. They didn't want to see the Jewish people be destroyed. Verse 12, sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. I love that in the middle of all this judgment stuff, God tells them what he wants. 
This is what he's looking for. When sinful living reaps the consequences, chapter 8, verse 7, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Here he gives the opposite side of that equation. Here he says in chapter 10, verse 12, sow righteousness and reap mercy. You're going to sow whatever, you're going to reap whatever you sow in life, right? And this is a major kind of truth of the Bible. You reap what you sow. If you sow into other people's lives, you reap relationships. If you sow selfishness, you will be all by yourself. If you sow into a, a career path, you'll probably do well financially. You'll reap the financial rewards of that. If you sow into gardening, you will likely become a better gardener. If you sow into engineering, you'll become a better engineer. You reap what you put your time into, what you sow in life. So God always shows us the door. And even though he's explaining all this judgment, he's showing them what to do in the face of judgment, which is to sow for themselves righteousness. Learn how to live rightly. And rightly is defined by God's law. So you go back and read Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. Go back to the Torah and study it and know what God means by that. To sow it here in the Hebrew literally means to sow yourself. The word for isn't necessarily there in the Hebrew. Sow yourselves. You're the seed. Plant yourself in the ground. To sow with something, they would generally go out and just scatter seed on the ground. And so in response to judgment, He's telling God's people to plant, a, plant themselves in a new place. Reap in mercy. Righteousness is not sinlessness. We should know that. To be sinless, you give sacrifices under the Levitical system. For Christians to be sinless, Jesus is our sacrifice. We simply accept it. You don't reap sinlessness. Righteousness is to live rightly under God's law. That doesn't mean you're without sin. Sin's in the heart. But to live righteously means your actions are done according to God's law. Kind of a slightly different thing. And then the idea is reaping mercy. So you don't farm for mercy, you reap mercy. And, and understand that mercy is to not punish you for your sins. So if I live righteously, God may choose to not punish me for my existing sins. Do you see what I'm saying? Living righteously doesn't mean you don't have sin. Otherwise, the sentence doesn't make sense. If I live righteously... I might not be punished for the unrighteous parts of my life. That's the hope. Because God actually has mercy and he wants to forgive. Break up your fallow ground. Ground that isn't farmed for a year is called fallow ground. So in, in, in Jewish law, they were supposed to farm land for six years. And on the seventh year, they gave it a rest. So when you came back after that year, that, year would be, that ground would be hard. It would have random weeds growing in it that would create root systems, which were great nitrates. They make the soil healthy. Um, but if you go ahead and try to farm that fallow ground, you got to break the ground all over again. So you get out the big iron plow, you put your oxen on it, and you start breaking that ground, and it's hard to do. What God's saying here is he's comparing it to the human heart. God sees that they were farming unrighteousness, and it hardened their hearts. What they need to do now is farm righteousness and, and break up the fallow ground, break that ground up again. If you're out of practice, that might mean some tough times. If you're going to try to live righteously and you haven't been, that might mean making life changes. And that's not easy to do. It takes some intention. It takes a big iron plow to come in and, and get that sorted out. 
So breaking up the ground, another effect of that, when you break up fallow ground, it actually softens the ground. God often tells us to have our hearts soft to his will and his word. I would rather have a soft heart than a a hard heart because it's simply healthier. And to have a soft heart means we actually feel and have empathy for the people around us. To have a soft heart means we're receptive to God's correction in our life. To have a soft heart is a lot less energy. I don't have to resist whenever God's trying to convict me of something. I just hear it and change. Mark 4, 5. Some seeds fell on stony ground, hard ground, and where it didn't have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Trying to live righteously with a hard heart doesn't go very far. It springs up quickly. Everybody's going to see your efforts to be righteous because you'll probably make a big show of them. But without a soft heart, the roots don't grow down and the plant withers and dies. So you get people that are like all excited to live for the Lord, big effort at righteousness, and then because the roots never hit that heart, it just dies out and they wither away. Break up your fallow ground. It's interesting that the advice of Hosea, God's word through Hosea to Israel, is that the reaction to judgment should be to break, to get a soft heart again. So all these national problems, but it really comes down to you and your heart. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying pass new laws. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying get a soft heart and live righteously. If they live righteous, the same consequence happens to the threshing floor idols. Remember, he's going to say they will grow weeds out of disuse and just inattention. All those false idol places are just going to stop being in existence. You know, bowling alleys used to be big in the United States, but all over the United States, people just stopped bowling. And all the bowling alleys just kind of got nasty, and there got to be weeds in the parking lot, and the paint started to chip, and those bowling alleys, in large part, couldn't even afford to keep up. Now there's a resurgence. Maybe it's a bad example. But you could also look at other places. If everybody in the country starts to live righteously, there's going to be a lot of bars that get disused. And so God making a promise or a prophecy that the idol spaces will be disused, it's either going to be happened because the idol worshipers are hauled off by Assyria, but there's a possibility if they humble themselves and change that they go into disuse because the godly people don't use idol worship spots. So there's this idea God's giving. There's still a choice to be made here that would fulfill God's prophecy either way. And I like this. Right on the edge of judgment, verse 12, and this is one of my favorite verses in these chapters, for it's time to seek the Lord. The way you break the ground is to redirect what we seek. And when do you do that? Right now, today. You don't wait another second to do it. God's putting something on your heart. You act on it. Don't harden your heart against it. Change and live differently. Deuteronomy 4.29, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. The promise of God has always been, if you seek him, you'll find him. So you pursue him with everything you got. Now's the time. Now's when we do this. Today's the time to seek righteousness. This is the hour. This is the second, the time to seek the Lord. No other time. If we live that way, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, Psalm 119.2. And we do this till he comes. What's interesting as he's saying this is there is this till he comes that gets thrown in there. 
that's interesting. Who's he talking about there? And I think sometimes these prophets were saying things and they're thinking about the consequence of Assyria, but then because it's the Holy Spirit th speaking through them, 2 Peter chapter 1, because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through them, those prophecies refer to some other things too. So it's time to seek the Lord until he comes means the Lord is going to come. And there's a promise of the Lord himself coming to be with us here and will rain righteousness on us. This is great. There's a created cycle here of our time to seek the Lord is until the Lord comes. Well, Jesus has already come and gone, so does that mean we don't seek the Lord anymore? No, because he's promised he'll come again. So from the prediction of this prophecy, the call of the person that wants to seek the Lord is to do it and to do it right now. And that hasn't changed with Jesus, and it won't change until he comes. We plant the seed with an expectation of growth. If we're going to till up our fallow ground and plant the seed of righteousness, you don't plant seeds not thinking anything's going to come of that. So we, I would argue, we plant seeds for our own, it's a self-serving thing to plant a seed. But there's a long-term benefit that you're expecting when you plant a seed, that there will be a plant, that that plant will have fruit on it, and that that'll all happen. So when we have faith, we plant a seed and we expect that that faith will grow, even if it's small as a mustard seed. We trust that what God's word is true. And here's what the prophet says. He says that now is the time to seek righteousness. So we trust that that's true and we do it with the expectation that something will grow if we do those things. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seeking the Lord God, what does that look like? Again, 2 Peter chapter 1. Read the Word of God. Be with the saints. Worship. Praise. Those are the things that you do to seek God. I don't know how to praise. Well, try it and try it awkwardly. I don't know how to read the Word. Show up to a Bible study. Do it consistently. I don't know how to hang out with the people of God. Neither did I until I actually started hanging out with the people of God. You have to just do those things and have faith that that seed will grow into something beneficial. Until it rains righteousness upon you. There is a cycle of life. Investing in righteousness then produces righteousness. If you plant a tomato seed, it produces tomatoes. Imagine that. So if we seek righteousness and we pursue it and we have an expectation of growth in it, we sow righteousness, we reap mercy, we don't get punished for our sins, our heart gets softened, we break up the fallow ground, we seek the Lord with that, and then he shows up and it rains righteousness upon us. We get what we plant in the same way that the idol worshipers are going to get what they planted. So I just like this idea. It rains righteousness upon you. God grows the seed. God grows the righteousness. What do you do with all that righteousness that's raining upon you? I would highly suggest replanting that in a softer heart and let the cycle continue. And let it just do some things. Verse 13, you have, huh, now he's going back to the other side. You have plowed wickedness and you have reaped iniquity. That's the opposite of righteousness and mercy. You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped iniquity. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. I can't tell you how many times through the Old Testament we keep coming back to this idea. They did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And there's a way that people think is right and it leads to death. Our, it, it goes to show, if you believe the Old Testament is true, 
there is our own instinct which will inevitably lead us to the wrong decision. You have to start go through life following your own path long enough to see how it doesn't work until you utterly distrust your own instincts more than you trust God. Wait, as there's some sort of thing there, right? You distrust your own instincts and you grow in trusting that God maybe knows better than you do how to live your life. And as that happens in life, there's a blessing that comes with it. These, verse 13, they're not getting the blessing. They're getting the opposite thing. They're following their own path. They're sowing, they're sowing their own desires and they're reaping their own desires. They're getting what they sowed. Next, what you think is strong, Israel, is going to fail you. So he kind of expands on this idea of plowing wickedness. In the multitude of your mighty men, they think armies are going to save them. They think they got the best military around. Nothing can touch them. Verse 14, therefore tumult shall rise amongst your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. That's not a pretty picture. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At the dawn, at dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off entirely. So some people believe that at dawn reference is actually Hosea giving a prophecy the day before one of these kings got killed. But there's nothing here that kind of validates or tells us which of those kings. Um, but obviously, if this prophecy came out and the next day at dawn one of those kings was killed, that would put this prophecy in the temple records and they would hold on to it. And then we'd see things like, wait until he comes, until his righteousness will reign upon you. The flesh is weak, and our way towards power is to gather more flesh in what we call armies. And then we think we're safe, right? We desire safety, so we build fortresses around ourselves. We build bank accounts. We build literal fortresses against other armies. We build the, the fortress of our homes. And the end result is that those things don't save us at all because our enemy is not of flesh. Our enemy is one of the heart. We have wickedness that we sow in our heart, and lo and behold, it's going to be wickedness that destroys them. These ways are cut off. There's no crop for any of these things. Verse 15, they're cut off utterly. They have absolutely no fruit and no harvest. What's amazing is that God says this again and again and again, and yet as human beings, unless we're in the Word, we, we forget this instantly if we're not in the Scriptures. It's the scriptures that remind us that our own paths don't bear fruit. It's amazing how a non-believer can go through life not experiencing joy, peace, happiness, contentment, security. All those things are gone from their life, but it doesn't occur to them that that might be that they're picking the wrong path. They'll just keep going down that wrong path in misery until the day they die, and Satan loves that. The most dangerous thing to Satan is a Christian saying, wake up, there's a better way to live your life that your path is leading you to destruction. Don't you see that? And for them to maybe take a moment to soften that hard ground and go, I do see that. I haven't gone anywhere good with this path. It is a path to destruction. And sometimes people need that ground breaking by the Lord. Sometimes people can soften their own hearts. But ultimately, those consequences of sin are things that could lead them to Christ when they see the consequences. Mark 4.20 I'll end the chapter on this. But these are the ones sown on good ground. 
those seeds that get planted in good ground. Those who hear the word accept it, and they bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. Here's the hope. You can sow to yourself and have nothing at the other end of it. Or you can sow to God, and the promise of that isn't just that you're happier. It's that the fruit could be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Way more than just you gets blessed when you pursue righteousness. The act of a righteous person avails much. It has a much larger impact than when you just serve yourself. I think that's a beautiful thought. Let's not forget, God still loves Israel, even though he's punishing them. This is the most important thing to teach your kid if you're spanking them. I am about to spank you. That's what God does. He tells them, you're about to get spanked. And he says, this is going to hurt. And at this point, the kid generally starts crying if they have any kind of conscience whatsoever because they're thinking about the pain, which is more torture than the actual spanking. Then the spanking comes, and yes, in fact, it does hurt. But before the pain ever comes, a good parent tells the kid, when the spanking's over, you can hug and hold and get comforted for as long as you want. I love you. I'm your parent. I'm never going to let you go. So until your heart resettles, I'm here for you. But I have to show you this consequence, or you're going to keep doing this thing. And so godly parenting brings that sting to the fleshy backside, no permanent damage. They don't do it in anger. They do it in love. And I, I, I would argue from Hosea, as he gave us this image as a, a heartbroken husband watching his bride go astray, he's disciplining Israel in love with the hope that they will cling to him afterwards. They might cry a little bit, but after the crying, there's a resolution to never do idol worship again because they recognize and remember the spanking that comes with it. And that's going to actually be the result. So in Hosea chapter 11, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Again, this image of God as a parent and Israel or his children. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to the carved images. This is the problem. His children keeps doing this. And it says, I loved them. Just a, a, very, a very kind of interesting idea that God loves his children. But he keeps saying it. I do love you and I do want what's best for you. But I can't let you keep doing this and not experience any sting. Out of Egypt I called my son. There's a metaphor here. Uh, literally speaking, like this is a super rare occasion where Israel's referred to as a male. Do you see how it says, I loved him and I called my son? Almost always when God speaks of Israel, it's his bride or his, his wife. Even the Hosea image is a female. And God's people are presented in the female. But in this case, again, it's rare that gender gets swapped and Israel is referred to as a male. Why? Because God's sliding in a prophecy about Messiah here too. And it says, out of Egypt I called my son. So for Hosea, he's probably thinking, well, that's God calling God's people out of Egypt. But that's not how it gets used in, in Matthew 2.15. Matthew uses this verse in reference to Jesus avoiding the massacre of Herod. And out of Egypt, because Joseph and Mary went down to Egypt to avoid the killing of the babies, and they came back when the angel told them it was safe. And so Matthew says that and says this is exactly as the prophet said. So again, we get another example of it. It means something to the prophet in the current times, but it's also messianic in the other sense. Um, verse 2, they went to a dollar tree in, in Israel at its best. 
is an image of Jesus at its worst, and it's an embarrassment that God's got to deal with. Um, but at the, at the same token, we get this thought that um, God loves Egypt and he also loves his son Jesus in that verse. Interesting use of prophecy by Matthew. Like you could argue, well, that's an odd way to use prophecy, but we actually see that the, that the disciples used prophecy like that. And they would take these phrases and take them, you could argue even out of context, but they're using them because they're God's Holy Spirit-inspired words and they're applying them to Jesus. And we see that multiple times. This is just one of those instances. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk. <laughs> Again, this parenting image keeps coming up. Taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. And I stooped to feed them and fed them. This is an image of a toddler learning to walk. In verse 4, those gentle cords. One of the ways you can teach a kid to walk that was popular in the first century and, and before that in the ancient world is you'd take little ribbons so you didn't hurt the kid and you'd tie the ribbons to their hands so the kids could kind of grab the ribbons but because they're ribbons, they're not like a rod or something hard. So they could kind of use them to help balance and as a toddler, they could teach themselves to walk and it would help the muscle development along. You could still teach, help teach a kid to walk like this. I frankly like watching them figure it out for themselves. Um, but if you wanted a kid walking sooner than later, you could use little ribbons, little gentle cords is what they're saying here. Um, bands of love, right? I'm just going to do this because I want to help you learn to walk. And he gave them the law. And then he gave them Joshua. And then he gave them the judges. Then he gave them kings that he picked out for them. He gave them those gentle cords to show them what right living looked like. Um, and I was to them as to those who take the yoke from their neck. I was the one that lifted the yoke of slavery off of you. And so he's helping them remember, I'm the guy that did this. I did it because I loved you. Again, this is the explanation before the spanking. Remember, I'm the one who loved you. But now you're not going to get gentle cords. You're going to get Assyria. This is going to hurt. And as this spanking's coming, you got to be aware that I love you even though this is about to happen says, I stooped and fed them. Uh, he's maybe referring to giving them manna in the desert. But I think overall, he's you know saying that he was the one that helped the crops come in. He was the one that helped them get prosperity. When God says he stooped, the word there is one that would imply a condescension. So the idea that God does come down to meet humanity. right? And so even that idea of stooping and coming down, you could see that as messianic too. God incarnating himself was to limit his own existence so that he could feed us the word of God directly. And as Jesus condescended to earth, he stooped down in order to feed us these things. But he also gave rain, he gave bounty to crops. All of this special attention was kind of God saying, I love you so much, I'm happy to stoop down and help you. Now here's the thing, we see coming down to someone as often that's referred to as a bad thing in our world. It's bad to condescend to someone. Well, it is if you're equals, right? But God's not our equal. And when he condescends, that's, that's something that's loving and beautiful. When a parent stoops down to help a child, it's done out of love, not out of um, distance or hatred or what we would say is negative con condescension. So when God stoops down to feed and care for people, it's loving and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It's what a parent does with their kid when they get on the ground to play with them. 
I don't normally sit on the ground, but when I have grandkids, whoop, I'm on the ground. I'm down at their level and playing with them, even if it hurts to some degree. And it probably will. Verse 5, he shall not return to the land of Egypt. Again, we've switched to that singular personal male pronoun. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. God isn't the cause of these things. He's pulled his protection, but the, the, the cause is their own human sin and their avarice. And because they've sinned and they refuse to repent, this is going to happen. So he's giving more specifics on what that's going to look like. Verse 7, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call me the Most High, none at all exalt him. That's, an, again, an interesting turn of phrase. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. Now, these are the words of God referring to himself as a him. This is you know, an odd thing, but yet when you put Jesus into the mix, it's absolutely true. It's worded correctly, right? Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him, a singular male pronoun, the Messiah. They don't exalt Jesus. So they call themselves believers, but they dishonor their God. That's not a good thing. Backsliding is not a good thing. It's used a ton in Jeremiah. We'll definitely cover backsliding in Jeremiah. It's only used twice in Hosea. Meshubah in the Hebrew means to turn away, to stop tending to something. And I always thought of backsliding as if like you're trying to like climb a gravel hill and then your feet slip out from under you because the gravel's going away, that you kind of are moving forward with your feet, but you're actually sliding backwards. But backsliding is really like the, not quite that. It's like trying to climb up the gravel hill and then you turn away. You actually stop trying to climb it and you turn away, and not only are you sliding, but you're sliding while your feet are moving in the same direction. So it's like going down a gravel hill, and you're going down faster than you're even walking because the gravel's sliding out from under you. So backsliding isn't accidental. It's not like something you do because you're not tending to things. The use of the word here is that backsliding is actually to turn away. And we see other passages where if you're not turned towards God, you're probably walking away from God. But we rarely as humans stay static. It's not that we don't move or we stay constant in that sense. So it's not making a mistake. Backsliding in this context is an active choice to focus elsewhere and to turn in another direction. Repenting is the opposite word in the sense that you take a turn. That's the same idea, but you're turning towards the good. So backsliding is to turn towards the evil and the empty repenting is to turn yourself towards the good and the righteous. And those two words are, are two sides of the same coin, but the word is turning. So God doesn't take pleasure in letting go of them. That's this next part, verse 8. And I think the idea that none of this is what God wanted, it's what God said would happen. And he's keeping his promise here. But it's not what he wants. This isn't a harsh, angry God. This is a God that's brokenhearted and has to discipline his children. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over to Israel? How is it possible that I have to do this? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboeum? So those two towns are, if you've all heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, those are two of the other five, there were five towns destroyed. 
So that's two of them that were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and I can't remember the fifth one. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I feel for you. As you go through this pain, I'm going to go through it with you. Honestly, the best thing I can think of is when we did have to spank the kids. It, I hated it. It was. It, I'd always look at stuff going, do you want to do it? And she'd look at me going, no, you get this one. I'm home all day and I've been doing it all day. And so the idea of having to spank, boy, for a parent, like it, it feels like you got a kid that isn't learning. They didn't listen. And so it, God's sympathy is stirred. His heart churns within them. This is not a good moment for God. This bothers God. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I'm not going to let go the full fury of how I feel about sin. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So this is an interesting thing. It bothers God that there's going to be a consequence here, and even in punishment, yet he's going to hold himself back here because he's God, not man. When men get wronged and we exact vengeance, men go overboard. Humanity goes harder than they have to in vengeance. And God says the opposite. I'm not like you. I'm the Holy One. Interestingly, it says, in your midst. Again, another messianic thing gets slipped in here. He's present, and he's present with Jesus in our midst, but he's also present with the Israelites as this consequence is going to happen. He's present with us today, and he will be present with us at the second coming too. So there is just this, the use of language here is just interesting, and it fits in all those contexts. For I am God. I think we start to, to break up the fallow ground. We can break up our hearts with that thought alone. He's God and we're not. And that humility, honestly, is one of the very first but most essential steps in humbling yourself before the Lord. Is God in charge or are you in charge? And that idea of God just reminding them, I'm God, I'm not a man. He's not our equal. He's not, and, and it bothers me sometimes when I, yes, Jesus is our friend and he's come to us as a brother in some ways, but he's also our Lord, creator, and God. He's not mankind. And so this idea of Jesus, my buddy and my pal, only goes so far with me because then you see verses like this. Also know that we can have a, a very personal relationship, but we are not equals. God's not our equal. And so that idea of I am God um, is that idea that God is to be worshipped and to be understood as such. And in that context, we can be friends of God. In that humility and that full understanding of his love, his patience, his promises, his condescension, his sacrifice that was made for us, when we realize those things, now we can have a right relationship. Now we can have intimacy with God. Now Jesus Christ becomes our friend at that point with the understanding that he's also our Lord and our Savior, as he's referred to. I don't think we'll ever come to fully understand the love that God has for us. I think that you can spend a lifetime grasping some degree of God's love, but I think there's sins and trespasses that we're not even aware of that God is overlooking when he forgives us. I think there are, are things where God has been patient with us that we're not even fully aware of. The extent and the eternity of this is amazing. And then he says this, 
<laughs> for I'm not God, I am God and not a man, even though he will incarnate as a man, Jesus Christ, the Holy One in our midst, I will not come with terror. It's interesting that the Pharisees in the first century thought the Messiah was going to come as a conquering warrior because there are prophecies about that. But there are also prophecies like verse 9. I'm going to come, but I won't come in terror. When Jesus came, he did not come in terror. In fact, humanity was so not scared of Jesus, they crucified him on a cross. And so this promise that when he comes, the Holy One in our midst, that he won't come with terror, gets perfectly fulfilled in the form of Jesus Christ. And we go through the prophecies and you think you're in the Old Testament, but you really find you're just talking about Jesus. In fact, you go through the Old Testament and you find that pretty much the whole Old Testament is a precursor to Jesus. And it tells us all about what to expect when Jesus shows up. So we should expect that he's not going to come with terror. We should also expect that there's a conquering warrior there. But the kind of warfare Jesus introduced us to was a spiritual warfare. So... Jesus says as much, John 17, 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When Jesus came, not only did he not come with terror, but he came with the message of hope and joy. Here's how to be joyful. And he just told us. Verse 10, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west and they shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. This is hope right in the middle of a consequence. I'm going to spank you, but in the end, I'm going to also give you a home, and I'm going to love you. And I, even though you're going to realize the action was the thing we have to deal with, you as a person are the thing that I love. I don't like the sin, but I love you so dearly, I'm going to make this right. And you can cling to me as long as you want after this spanking. I'm going to actually open up that opportunity. Until your hearts become settled in the trust and in the faith of God as your provider. They shall walk after the Lord. It's interesting at, at all these messianic pieces. And then that idea of just walking after. One of the things Jesus said is, if you follow me, follow me. So the idea of following someone is Jesus walked a certain way. We're going to walk after in that same path. We're going to walk like Jesus. So we see that pop up in the New Testament. The remnant of the northern kingdom being sent off to Assyria, if they start following the Lord, they're going to come back and they're going to find Jesus. It's interesting that when Jesus sent the, pro the disciples out by two by two, he sent them out in all directions. And when he told Peter and he told Paul to go preach to the Gentiles, guess what remnants were out amongst those Gentiles? Gentiles. The Assyrians scattered the northern kingdoms. There are descendants of those people in all of those Gentile nations, in all directions. So God going out after them, I think he's seeking after these lost tribes, person by person by person, bringing them back by the call of the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus went out to all nations, and this tribe is part of those all nations because they've been disseminated and dispersed there. Israel is going to regather in the future. They're going to rule themselves again. They're going to buy their own houses, verse 11. So, yes, you're going to all be scattered, but Israel will be reformed someday. Remember the northern kingdom broke off from the southern kingdom under Jeroboam because they wanted to do things their own way? God's saying at some point, I'm going to fix even that wound that you guys caused. You guys split up Israel. I'm going to put it back together. 
And so I think it's exciting that we live in a time where we do see a united Israel. And you notice when you look at Israel today, there is not a northern Israel and a southern Israel. There is not the Ephraim capital of Samaria or the Judean capital of Jerusalem. There's just Jerusalem. There's just Israel. And so it has been reunited. They shall come like trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. Again, Egypt and Assyria is like they're going to come from north and south. They're going to come from all directions. And coming trembling like a dove is not coming in like a conquering army. So Israel, I'm going to reunite you, but when you come back, it's not going to be your army that makes this country happen. You're going to come back trembling. You're going to come back weak. And you're going to come back in a time of peace. Doves are inevitably like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. A dove is often an image of peace and an image of the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be a peace that's made and the Holy Spirit's going to inspire people to give you this country, and it's not going to be on your own strength, which is exactly how it happened in 1948. The nations of the world said, what are we going to do to avoid another Holocaust? Here's this weak, trembling people that are as fragile as a bird. How are we going to make it so that the Jews don't get wiped off this planet? And Britain said, we're tired of running Palestine. They can have it. This rocky, desolate land that nobody wants. They can own it. And when Brit the Britons gave Palestine to the Israelites, there was virtually nobody living there. A bunch of Bedouins. It was not a populated part of the world. So they gave them this desert land and said, okay, you've got your home. And Israel gets this home and they came trembling like a bird from all over the world. And he lets them dwell in their houses. They get to build their own houses and stay in them, which is exactly what's happening. It's interesting how prophecy plays this out. You say, Sean, maybe he's just talking about coming back from Assyria. Well, they never did until 1948. The northern kingdom never gets brought back. So the, the only time in history where you could argue that those nations had a chance to come back to Israel was the open invite to any Jewish person to return to Israel after 1948. It's still an open invite if you're Jewish. Verse 12, Ephraim's encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. God repeats the charges, these lies. He promises hope in the middle of it. And then he throws in this, but Judah, there's a hope here. Because the promise God's made of Messiah is now with Judah and Judah alone. So, but Judah. You guys are going to get disseminated, dispersed all over the place. But Judah's still going to do its thing. They're going to still serve their purpose. Now, you could argue at this time that Judah had idol worship introduced to it. So at some sense, when it says Judah still walks with God, God's being very generous with that. But here's the thing. Judah still has the temple that Solomon built. They're still worshiping in that temple the way that God said to. And there's still an order of priests and the sons of the prophets that are both conducting Levitical law as they were said to. And there's prophets that are preaching it. That might not be the majority of the country, but God is treating the country as though it's on good terms because of that group of people that are being faithful. This is interesting. When you think of before Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed, you know, or, or, and God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy this city. And he said, well, what if there's some righteous people there? And God says, I won't destroy it because of some righteous people. And we see the same principle here. God's looking at Judah as though they walk with God because they, we know there are people that do walk with God there in Judah. And he gives the country the benefit of the doubt because of those godly people. I think that's really hopeful. I think that means that if you live in a country that you feel like it's fallen away from the Lord, you don't fall away from the Lord. 
and you become a preserving element in that country. You mind your own business, and God sees that and honors that. In the same way he did with, with Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way he did with the northern kingdom, in the same way he's doing it with Judah right now. So, it says, even with the Holy One, another unnamed reference to God walking with them, the Messiah. The Holy One will have no sin. So, we do look at that, even with the Holy One who is faithful, uh, there's going to be a holy one. Well, the question is, who's the holy one? And we don't get that name until Matthew chapter 1. But that holy one's going to be there, and they are going to be faithful. There will be a person that walks without sin for their entire life, even if it's only 33 years. So you've got the Lord, verse 10, like a lion, verse 12, and that it, and that it is encircling me. Like God's going to walk around and there's going to be a roaring lion of Judah that gets encircled by a bunch of liars. You see the image? Verse 12, walking with God, even the Holy One. So same being, different names. They associate that God, verse 12, is actually the Holy One, faithful. It's interesting to see how the disciples treated Jesus as God when they understood who he was. Same principles here in the Old Testament. Verse 9, I won't destroy. So the first coming is Jesus' as Savior. God comes as himself. And there is a roaring that's there. It's interesting when we see the roaring in verse, uh, verse 10. And we've talked about this before. When a, a lion roars, it's first of all incredibly loud. And the design of the roar is when a lion roars, it's meant to freeze the prey. So if you've got a pack of little sheep and the lion's hungry, the lion will sneak up as quietly as it can, and then it'll try to scare the crap out of them. And cats, I think, delight in this because they're predators. So the lion will roar this blast of a roar. And on the, on the plains and prairies, this would be a terrifying thing for the poor little sheep. Some of those sheep, most of them, will run away from the sound of the roar as fast as they can. And in doing that, many of them will hurt themselves and then the lion gets to eat that way. But some of those sheep will not know what to do and they will freeze. And this is the, the, the idea in nature, this is how the lion's roar works. If they go up to a pack of any kind of grass-eating beings and they roar loud enough, some of them will just freeze. And the lion simply walks up and kills it and destroys it. And so there's this idea of when there is a God coming at his, as himself that will be surrounded by liars who will not destroy us, the Savior, but there's also a roaring lion who will be there that will be roaring. And there is an idea that, that God is going to walk over and roar. There will be something that is said or done, and some people will run away from it, and some people will freeze. But the effect of the lion's roar should be that something happens in our heart, and we respond to it in some way, shape, or form. So if the lion is God and he's walking with Judah and in their midst, we see a lion of Judah and it's only used one other time when we see the lion. In fact, Jesus' first coming is always referred to as the Lamb of God. But then you look in Revelation 5.5 5 and you get the only other reference to Jesus as the lion. But one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the branch of David, the Nazar, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. The time when Jesus is referred to as the lion is at the second coming of Christ. 
when he is going to... For the godly, we don't have to weep. For the ungodly, he's about to end them. And the roar of the Lion of Judah will freeze people in their tracks and cause them to run in panic because the judgment of God is going to come and it's going to come in a much less passive way than his first coming where he told us how to live. So the seven seals are all judgments that are going to be passed on a sinful earth, extremely reflective of what's about to happen to the northern kingdom. The judgment of God is going to come and wipe them all out. We have very few occasions of that kind of judgment in the history of the world. One is Noah. One is Sodom and Gomorrah, which got referenced in this chapter. The destruction of the northern kingdom is one of the other times. And you have to go all the way forward to Revelation to see that repeated or mirrored again. The judgment of the entire world will be a reflection of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the destruction of the northern kingdom. So you see these pieces coming together. And for me, it makes me really appreciate prophecy. God laid it all out for us. And it's not, it's not particularly coded. So there is that question of, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. What is the Holy One faithful in doing? What, that's a good question. Here's what he's faithful in doing. And I want to end on this because it's a promise to us. The first coming's already happened. But here's what the, the Holy One is faithful in. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, we break up the fallow ground, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sow righteousness, reap mercy. Same chapter. If we're faithful to do that, if we can come and confess our sins and break up that hard heart, he's faithful to forgive us of those things. And so when you see here that Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful, the thing that he is noted of being faithful for is to forgive sins. And it's exactly what the disciples got all excited about. Jesus rose from the dead. He has the power to forgive sins, just like Hosea says. And he's going to be faithful in that because he's promised to do it. So the broken ground sows seeds of righteousness that reap mercy and we get a shower of righteousness in this moment. This is the hope of God that goes all the way back thousands of years. And it's an amazing thing. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. This is so current. It hasn't lost a second in aging. This is exactly what God says to all of us. Not a, no distance. In the middle of judgment, I can't help but feel a little hope here. In the middle of the worst thing that's ever happened to the people of Israel, you get messages like this and you think, oh, there's hope for me. I don't have to follow the doom of the nation I live in. I can be saved from that by following Jesus Christ. In the middle of a mirror showing me all my sin, and how I've fallen short, I can still celebrate that God's kind to me. That God's got mercy. And my sins aren't going to be paid for by me. They've been paid for by Jesus. What an awesome thing. In the middle of my spanking, I know that my Father loves me. And so even as I understand how I need to deal with that, that sin has to be paid for, even as I understand consequences in my life that are very natural for living out ungodly ways, I know that my God still loves me in the middle of those consequences. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God that the Old Testament actually pictures for us. 
one that has mercy. And so it's funny how the ungodly people often paint the Old Testament God as this cruel, harsh, judgmental person. Think of it as a loving parent that has to carry out a consequence. And they have sympathy and they have a broken heart over that consequence and they provide a way to do it right. Next time you're tempted to eat all the cookies in the cookie jar, don't do it and I won't have to spank you again. And so kid grows up and thinks, I'm just going to take cookies when I have permission to take cookies. Good husbands learn that too as their wives give them consequences when they eat all the desserts before the company comes over. I know, right? But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who's faithful. You know what, Northern Kingdom? You're no longer going to have a country. But those individuals, my hope is that they seek righteousness. And you know what? My promise hasn't left. I still have Judah. And they're still doing it the way I asked them to do it. And there is still a Messiah that's going to come and walk in your midst. So the promise of God hasn't changed one bit, even though you as a Northern Kingdom are about to end. <laughs> right? God's love, his hope, and his promises for those who seek him faithfully still endures and it still maintains. In other words, the only people that are going to feel the consequence of sin are the people that want to feel the consequence of sin by rejecting their God. And that hasn't, that's not unique to Jesus. It's something that was promised in the Old Testament to the Israelites. Pursue God, seek righteousness, you're going to be okay. And I think for a lot of people that should just be a message of assurance and hope. I'm going to be okay because I know that I'm seeking the Lord. Period. That's it. So that's the message tonight. And I think we might even finish Hosea next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your prophecies. Thank you that these things were plotted out. Hundreds of prophecies around your Messiah. Thank you for pointing to those so that we can remember them and look back on them and have assurance of our salvation. That our salvation is not some fly-by-night thing. It's not unique to us. It is a promise you've made to all humanity. Lord, help this to motivate us for evangelism. There is hope for people that think there is none. There are people that think that their sin is so bad it can't be forgiven. <clears throat> but you've promised that anyone that turns to you will be forgiven. Anyone who wants to. Lord, help us to not backslide, help us to not turn away from you, but to lean in, Lord, and to go for the race like we want to win it. Lord, help us to pursue life with, a, with an anxiousness to see what you're going to do next. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that the Bible is to us. We thank you for Hosea, who suffered many things to bring us this message of hope. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.